Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's going on, bud? Uh, there's not too much. I'm just I'm just at home. I've been home for a, a very long time, but I'm doing okay. Th- that's what's so good for like guys like me who have a hobby of hosting a podcast. Anyone you uh-huh. hit up are like, yeah, man, I got nothing going on. I'll definitely jump on. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I got all the time in the world. Senior writer for Rolling Stone and author of the awesome new book, The Office, The Untold Story of the Greatest Sitcom of the 2000s. Appreciate you calling in, my friend. A huge fan of this book. Yeah, of course. I am happy to be here. Thank you. Where are you calling me from? I'm in Brooklyn Heights. I know you're from Cleveland. I love asking food questions. Is there any food you miss about the land? Anything you crave from back home? I like the meatloaf there a lot. They can't do meatloaf here, right? It's always a hamburger that they cover in like gravy or something. It's not a proper meatloaf. You know what? That's a great call. All I do is travel, and obviously I live in New York City my whole life. Meatloaf, unless it's homemade, not that good. Yeah, yeah. I've tried it everywhere here, and and it's always overcooked and just bad. What? Uh, when did you move to Brooklyn? Uh, about sixteen years ago. You like it here? Yeah, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I do miss Cleveland, mm-hmm. but I like it here a lot. Isn't it crazy now? Obviously, I know exactly where you live, but it's yeah. crazy how it went from being wild, no parking on the street, congestion everywhere, to now it's like kind of a little suburb, isn't it? Yeah, it was like this overnight thing. I can walk <laughs> anywhere now, and there's nobody on the streets. You know, it's sort of creepy, but the trans- but the speed of the transformation is unlike anything I could have ever imagined. Nothing. And I, uh, I usually walk to work. I walk. I work like maybe 45 minutes from where I work. So I'll do a 45 minute walk. Mm-hmm. It's a 10 minute drive. Mm-hmm. I start. You know, I leave my house in the morning. Overnight, there's no cars. There's no cars on the street, and there's no people. I'm like, oh my god! Like you get to the intersection of like the Plasky Bridge, which is usually cars yeah. flying by and there's no one on the street i'm like this it's like a movie yeah well i read someone just drove across the entire country in a record 27 hours <laughs> it, shat- it just shattered the record for the cannonball run because the highways are empty you, you want to know why us new yorkers and obviously you're a new yorker now it's gonna be great because in whenever they open everything up within two days we're gonna be complaining about the traffic the congestion like this is ridiculous <laughs> Yeah, of course, of course, of course. Hey, before we talk about this book, I did a little research on you, obviously, and I saw that sure. you're a senior writer for Rolling Stone for the last 15 years. Was that always your mm-hmm. dream job? You know what? I didn't think much about it until I was finishing up college. I never saw myself as, as a writer, so I didn't see myself there. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I love music just so much, and I love Rolling Stone that I got an internship there. And I just sort of learned how to write while being an intern, and I just didn't leave, basically. Before your internship, what exactly did you do? What was your journey to get to Rolling Stone? Uh, I I did my senior high school project at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I just called them up and said, yeah, I would love love to work there, like, for free for, for like, four weeks as part of the senior project thing that I were doing. And so I went down there, and I volunteered for a month, and they hired me that summer to sort of do more work there. And I stayed there all during my college breaks and stuff. And you never left. And, yeah. And then <laughs> and the curator there, this guy, Jim Hankey, who used to edit Rolling Stone, and he got me the internship there. He just emailed some friends. 
And I moved here and I worked there for free for a few months. And then they hired me. And then 16 years just kind of vanished away. I love because uh, when I read you work there, I have zero interest in music. It sounds silly and oh. it sounds like <laughs> okay. ob- obnoxious. Like I don't listen to music there ha- unless my wife puts it on or if I'm in a car with somebody. Like there's times I don't ever drive, but if I drive somewhere for an hour, sometimes there's no music on. I just I just don't listen to music. I don't. It doesn't connect to me or whatever. So I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I'll I'll mention he works for Rolling Stone and move on. But I just saw you did a cover story in Howard Stern, man. How crazy was that? Yeah. It was pretty crazy. I'm a, I'm a lifelong fan. I've mm-hmm. listened to him for 25 years or something. And so to sort of be seated next to him for two for like two hours or so and seeing how tall he is and talking to him and shaking his hand and being in the studio, it was very surreal. I'm not easily starstruck because mm-hmm. I, I do so much celebrity interviewing, but being around him was sort of intense. As a writer there for 15 years, uh, how do projects come about? Do you approach them and be like, hey, listen, I want to do a story on blank? Or do they say to you, hey, Andy, let's do a story on so-and-so? How does it work for you knowing that you have so much seniority there and stuff? Well, for the big features or something or a cover story, like Howard, I'm assigned that by my editors who, who, sort of, who sort of know my interests and my strengths. Uh, but for articles on the website or smaller ones in print, I usually pitch them. And if they like the pitch, they just let me do it. The Stern story, uh, they, did they tell you, hey, this is going to be a cover story? Or you figured, like, listen, it's Howard Stern. Whenever he does anything, it's cover, it's yeah. front page. You no, know, for there's a term we use that's, that is cover only, that there are certain artists or stars that you don't even approach unless it's for a cover because you know their people will give you just an instant no. So we don't approach, like, Bob Dylan or, like, Johnny Depp <laughs> if, if it's not a cover offer. So for Howard, I knew it was definitely a cover. I've been up at Sirius uh, XM Studios a ton of times. I've done a ton of shows from there with people from there. When you get off the elevator and you made it right because you mentioned you did it in his studio, is that wild? It's like walking through the old E station. You see the Howard fist. Did you get a little goosebumps walking in there? I've been there a couple of times because I know Steve Brandano, who's a producer there, and Mm -hmm. he's given me a tour. But it was weird to walk through there and see the whole gang there and walk past Gary's office and see Sal and see Richard. I was met at the front desk by Ronnie, the limo driver. (laughs) So just this whole world I've been listening to for so long to all of a sudden be walking through it and seeing the people and just entering this place uh, was very surreal. Yeah. I have – I'm very fortunate. I have all these cool guests on, these actors, athletes, astronauts, whatever. But I always get intimidated interviewing a radio guy or a journalist or an author. So mm-hmm. were you intimidating interviewing one of the best interviewers of our time? I was nervous at the thought of it just because I, I, knew, I knew he talks about stuff on his radio show. And if he didn't like the interview, he would just talk about it. <laughs> you know, it's – he has a very big megaphone. Uh, but as soon as I was talking to him, he was so kind and so nice. I got calm very easy and that just wasn't really that stressful. And I think he did about 90 interviews that, that month. I mean, he was, he was flogging that book hard. Mm-hmm. So he did so many of them that I, I, I knew no one interview would, would stand out all that much to him. It was, all, it was just all a big blur to him. Your story on him was masterfully done because you arrest, uh, you address the biggest knock that fans have on him now, or you know the old fans. Stern sold yeah. out. Um, him being friends with Rosie O'Donnell is fake. Uh, the adoption yeah. of the kittens, the Hamptons. In your heart, what was your take on that? Because you saw it across from him, you looked in his eyes. What's your take on that whole the new Howard Stern? Uh, 
I have very complex feelings about this because I'm torn on the whole issue. Mm-hmm. I don't think the strength of the show is him interviewing big celebrities. And that seems to be his focus now. That that seems to be what he thinks is the most important part of the show. I like when he's just talking to Robin and Gary and Fred and just goofing around or talking about his day or his porn habits or just whatever. You know, I like him being the real him. And I'm, as a fan, I'm disappointed long-form interviews have become his main focus. I miss smaller guests that were really funny, like Gilbert Gottfried or something. Mm -hmm. I miss the Whack Pack stuff. I mean, I don't necessarily miss the porn stars and stuff. You know, as he said to me, if you've interviewed one porn star, you've interviewed them all. But I miss having people on, like, from all walks of life. I can see an interview anywhere. It's that switch, that switch, that switch, that that switch, and for Aniston or something. You know, I think that what he brought to the table was really unique and really eclectic people. And I sort of miss that part of the show in a big way. You, uh, because he seems to be in a good place, you know, when he speaks. And I work with Opie from Opie and Anthony, and he kind of mm-hmm. did the same thing. He, you know, he distanced himself completely from the ONA shock jock stuff. And I remember I've had talks with him, and I'm like, as a fan, I used to, I used to love when it was Opie, Anthony, and Jim Norton. And yeah. if, I didn't want uh, Tom Hanks in studio, but I wanted Colin Hanks in studio because the same <laughs> way as me as a fan, I don't want to interview Derek Jeter. He's done five million interviews. It's generic. I want to interview maybe the third guy on the bench who's going to give me juicy stories. So I always felt that was the same thing like, oh, Howard Stern had on uh, Hillary Clinton, which yeah. millions and millions on YouTube. But that's not the Howard Stern we know. We we can get that from Barbara Walters. We want Stern to interview yeah. like Hillary Clinton's niece who's like who's crazy, yeah. you know? I agree completely. If you talk to huge people that they're media trained, that they're cautious, they have a lot to lose. So they pick their words carefully and it's boring. You know, if I, if I talk to a band, I find the drummer or the producer or somebody on the sidelines, a lot more interesting than the lead singer. <laughs> and that, you know, that's, been my philosophy and my reporting for a, a very long time is you talk to people who were there who have great stories but, but aren't always the main person enough stern that was great i'm glad you opened up about it your book a new york times bestseller did that surprise you i yeah i didn't really think about the bestseller list as i was doing it i i the show was popular but i really didn't think i would get on that so that was a real thrill i hate to ask the one generic question but before we have fun Andy, sure. how the idea of this book to come? You have to ask the question. So, how the idea yeah, of sure, the fine. of the book to write it? Because you, I was very surprised that there was never a book on the office. So, how how this yeah. whole idea to uh, write a book on the office come about? Uh, I was home for Thanksgiving about two and a half years ago. I was with my parents. We were trying to think of a, of a fun thing to watch on Netflix. I just went on the office and I thought of my favorite episode, which is the dinner party. <laughs> and I clicked on it and we were laughing our asses off. I, I, I've seen it like 10 times, but seeing them laugh at it was sort of a new way to enjoy it. And I Googled it and saw the 10 year anniversary was was like coming up in a few months. So I thought it would be fun on the, the Rolling Stone website to do a oral history of just that episode for the anniversary. Uh, so I put requests in, and before I knew it, I was interviewing I was interviewing John Krasinski and Jenna Fisher and and, and Ed Helms uh, and all these people, and I 
had, you know, and I, I had a few more months, you know, so I kept going. I got Beth Grant on the phone who played Dwight's babysitter. <laughs> I got the guy on the phone who sang the song that Hunter sings oh, that one really? night. When he lost his virginity to Jan. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, one yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, and I realized that the more obscure the person I talked to, like, the better the story it was. Mm-hmm. And so we posted this. I, I ran like a 5,000-word thing about just the dinner party. And the traffic went ballistic. I mean, it was like 10 times bigger than any other story that month, day after day after our top story. So I was thinking, huh, well, that's interesting. And I went on Amazon.com. I searched books. I searched the office. I saw nothing. And I'm like, wait a minute. That's kind of nuts that there's no book out there. The show It's the biggest show. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the same time, I got, you know, and that's been – so before I published it, I was emailed by a book agent who had a idea for a book for me about something else. So I met with him and I'm like, hey, I, I like that idea, but how about The Office? I've already started. You know, I have all these hours of interviews of the people I didn't even use. And we, we wrote up a proposal, shopped it around and Dutton and I signed with Dutton and I just went to town. You authored the book in the oral storytelling format, and it's ironic because yeah. my last, the last book I read uh, was a book on the ABA from a Cleveland guy, Terry Pluto. He wrote a book on the ABA in the oh, oral sure. story uh, storytelling format. Explain to everyone what exactly that format is and how that's written. Sure. It's a format where you tell the story of something in the voices of, of various people who were a part of it. So you write you write intros and you write some tissue that connects the quotes but largely it's told in the voices of the people that you interview. Is it intimidating to write a book solely to one audience? Um, like I can recommend a history book. I'm like, listen, I know you're not into the Civil War, but this book is blank or a sports book. Right. Were you nervous about writing a book solely on The Office? Because if you don't like The Office, you're not going to pick up the book. Yeah, well, I had seen some secret Netflix numbers that were emailed to me because Netflix doesn't release mm-hmm. their numbers of their ratings. By the way, someone had them that I had that I interviewed. And I saw The Office is their number one show on the whole platform. It's bigger than the original programming. It's bigger than Friends. It's the number one streamed show. So as soon as I knew saw that, I realized that the audience for this was just massive. Take me through the process. Like, how do you tackle a project like this? Now, I know you had the uh, you had the foundation. You laid down the yeah. foundation with the dinner party. But besides that, because I have to like explain to everybody, you didn't just interview. We'll use their characters: Jim, Michael, yeah. Pam. You interviewed the caterer, the boom yeah. mic guy. Like, how did yeah. that? How did you sit down? Like, okay, I want to get the caterer. I want to get the random boom mic actor. Like, how did you even put all that together? I uh, it took a while. I sort of went onto IMDb Pro, <laughs> but I clicked on the office, and there's the name of every single person who was who who had any credits on the show. If they were a sound guy for one episode, they would. They were there. So it's hundreds and hundreds of people. So I made a document. I did, obviously, I did the main cast and the directors, but I kept going and I would do interviews with people and I'd say to them, hey, do you know what, do you, you know anybody else I should talk to? Can you, you think of somebody who's a, a bit less known? And they'd say, well, my friend, the boom, my guy, he was there for every scene. <laughs> you know, I go, great, give his number. And then I call him up and I'd say to him, hey, do you know anybody I should, I should talk to? And he go, my friend Shelly, she was a union painter on set. I go, great. 
I'll, I'll call her. You know, it was just anybody who was there I wanted to talk to. Was it? And I realized. Yeah. No, and I realized that, as we said earlier, the people who weren't the stars, they, they had the best stories often. So I figured I'm just going to, you know, I have one year or two to do this book. And in that year, I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to do this. And I'm, I, will, I, will, I, will, I will speak to I will speak to anyone I can. Was it an organizational nightmare putting this together? I've had authors on who've yeah. done oral books. Uh, Garrett Graff did a book on 9-11. He's like, I had 4,000 yeah. interviews. And after a while, I'm like, wow, I should have stopped at 1,000. You have yeah. all these, all these uh, comments and interviews and stuff. Was it a nightmare to put it all together? Uh, yeah, I had rev.com do all the transcripts, Okay, which cost me a fortune, but I couldn't <laughs> do it myself, but it died. Uh, and I would read through them and I was in, I was in, I was in, I was in Google docs. I had all these folders. And if someone talked about the improv aspect of the show, I would copy that paste, put it in a file I called improv. And I had a, but a hundred different files of various topics, just full of quotes. Wow. And then I went from those files, I started thinking about a structure that then I did an outline of chapters and then just sort of went through it. It was step by step by step. It took forever. And I was doing my full-time job at the magazine the, the entire time. So it was like a crazy year. And I did it in, in just 12 months Oof. when I realized I probably, probably needed a baby, but 18 to really do it. But I forced myself. The book, besides going behind the scenes, which is obviously fun, it brought back things and it made you realize stuff and stuff I didn't know about. Like, Andy, this show was in decline with viewers from every episode from like episode one, that first season, right? Yeah, the first season was just six episodes. And the pilot, it did fairly well because it got so much attention, but it was not very good. And the first season was just down, 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 down and was on the cutting edge. I mean, it was so close to being canceled. It was with one hair away from being canceled after just six episodes. And then basically a movie saved the show, didn't it? Yeah. What happened was the 40-year-old virgin hit, and that was one of the biggest comedies of the decade at that point, and that turned Steve Carell into a huge star, and that was just enough for NBC to be like, fine, we'll give them six more. <laughs> so it's, it's usually at a bare minimum. They buy 13 for a second season, but, but they just bought six at first. So they were always thinking that they were on the verge of being canceled that second season. So they made it. So they, they, they put as much as they could into each one. And that second season is just magic. And a lot of these actors were mostly unknown and some of them were still working in restaurants and stuff. That's, that really surprised me. Yeah, I think that a huge part of the genius of the show is in the casting, which was all done by Allison Jones, who's a superstar that cast Golden Girls and Veep and Curb Your Enthusiasm and Freaks and Geeks and A and A Rest of Development and all these shows. And she wanted the people to look as if they could be working at a paper company in Scranton. And she didn't want famous faces to be distracting. So besides Steve Carell, who was quasi known as a former correspondent on the Daily Show, she she picked people who were who were, were largely unknown. And you did a great job. I don't want to keep kissing your ass, but you did such That's a great fine. job of describing like them in the room. You're like, no, 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 we don't want them too pretty. We want them to look this way. Like stuff that a million years you would have never thought how much um how much uh, notes and how everything went together to put each character. There's so much thought into each character. That surprised you how much uh, detail they put into that, or you kind of knew that already? I was surprised because I, I didn't think much about it, 
but as a viewer, if you're watching the show and someone looks, if they have the looks of like a of like of like a supermodel, you would think to yourself, I don't believe that they'd be working at this place. Yeah. <laughs> or if Jim was a little too cocky, confident, suave, you, you, you wouldn't believe that he wanted to that he wanted to go after Pam hard or that he would stay at that job like for years. So they really had to bring in faces and personality types that all fit together and that, and that were plausibly working at, at, at this company because, you know, it's a pretty lousy place to work at <laughs> a struggling paper company in Scranton, you know, like in Scranton, you know, that's not a fun job. Now we uh, we're touching on season one and two of the American version. Uh, episode mm-hmm. one was a carbon copy, intentionally, of course, of the British one. It ventured yeah. out obviously to different storylines. When speaking to the writers and the actors, did they think they had something special even after season one or after season two? Did they know like, hey, this is special, or was it more like, hey, it's another run of the mill? We're doing more shows. What was their thoughts? I think they felt that season one was special and it had potential. Right. I think they knew that it could be much better, but the fact that there was no laugh track, that there's no studio audience, that, that, that there's no music, it was such a radical break from normal sitcoms that they felt it was special. But actors in that time, and these actors especially, who had been around for a while, they'd grown pretty used to being on projects that were just killed that Hollywood is full of sitcoms that get filmed and then never even aired or filmed once and then, and then dead. So they didn't get too excited because they were so used to, uh, to things going away so quickly. They did all the studies and it showed that Michael wasn't very lovable. So they changed yeah. him. They humanized him. They made him lovable. They showed his heart. He's a good person. When, if you know, on maybe your end, what do you think the turning point of the show was when it just like, whoa, this show is great. What was it? Was there a turning point? Was there an episode or something? Yeah. I think it was gradually in season two when you started caring about Michael. Because in the first season, he's such a dick and he's so abrasive and you don't really <laughs> like him at all. When he mock fires Pam and the pilot, mm-hmm. she's sobbing and he's laughing at her tears. It's just you hate him. And so season two starts, I think it begins at the Dundies. Mm-hmm. When when they're at the Chili's and sort of the frat and 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 like and like the fatty guys at the bar are being mean to him and they throw food at him and he looks so sad and, and they and they already behind him that you start feeling for him. But I I think of Halloween as a key turning point that um, it's a really rough episode because he's to fire somebody and they all hate him and and and, and he's to pick between Creed and between Devin and he fires Devin and they all hate him and he goes home so dejected. But then you see him <laughs> on his couch and you see him at home by himself. It's the first time that you really see him at, 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 at his house and he just, and, and he's on his couch. He's all by himself. You see that he has no friends and no family and he's lonely and he, and he, and he hates how his day went and then his doorbell rings, and he answers, and there's and there are kids there, and they are trick or treating, and he's so happy, and he's laughing at them, and he's giving candy, and he's so happy to see children that you realize he's so lonely and sad, and you really feel for him in in a big way. And remember when he fires him at the end, he goes, uh, "I hope we can still be friends." Like all he wants <laughs> is a friend in his life. Hey, uh, yeah. Let me ask you this yeah, part. Yeah. 
It's a sensual tragedy of the whole character <laughs> in that he has no friends or family. So he thinks these people that work for him are his friends and his family. And he desperately wants to be loved by people who he has to manage, <laughs> you know, and just seeing his employees who were there for a paycheck and put up with them because they have to as his friends is just really sad at its core when you think about it. Different episodes, Diversity Day, Dinner Party, The Dundee, Sexual Harassment. What made you focus and enhance certain episodes and really dig in and give the reader like every single behind the scene? Like what made you pick those episodes that you did? Well, when I did Dinner Party, I realized how fun it is to just zoom in tight. And there's like 201 episodes or something. So I couldn't do it to all of them. So I decided to pick out around 10 or so key episodes where I could stop being like so broad and general and zoom in just really tight to small moments. Like when the cat gets thrown into the ceiling, there's stress <laughs> relief. There's just these one second moments. I wanted to just go in as hard as I could and tell the story. So I thought of about 20 of them and I really narrowed it down. I, I tried to report out a few, but couldn't get a lot on them. I, I almost did Booze Cruise and Scott's Tots, but I didn't get a lot. So I just sort of, I focused on the 10 that I picked out. Now, did you, now this is going to sound silly, but I'll, I'll explain why it's going to sound silly. Did you have questions and stuff prepped for each character? Because I'll tell you why. When I have athletes and, you know, different, you know, mostly athletes. When I have an athlete on and I'm like, uh, hey, game six, 96, the count was three and two. They're like, whoa, whoa, I don't even, I don't remember that. Did you have questions (laughs) prepped? And were the actors, did they have a good memory about stuff? Because, you know, as fans, I'm telling you, I remember when Sprinkles went through the ceiling and came crashing down. They're going to be like, who, what? Like, did the actors themselves have a good recollection? And what kind of questions did you go there prepared with them for? Yeah, it was the same thing I do for most interviews. I write out about 30 questions or so on a and on like a Word document. I get them on the phone and then I barely even glance at it. You know, it becomes conversational. So I will bring up a few moments. If they need if they don't remember, I I just move on. But I found that the actors they had okay memories for, for stuff like that. But for the editors and stuff, for the people who watched the footage day after day, take after take, they knew it cold because they, they spent so much time on each one. The, uh, the Dwight character, he was kind of based on a real salesman. That kind of like, – and then you know your pictures at the end, I'm telling you, Andy, I recommend this book, and I really did. So I'm like, hey, I know you're even a little bit of a fan. You're a hardcore fan. you got to see this. This makes you watch a show completely different. Tell me about the Dwight character, how it's kind of based on a real dude. Uh, yeah, I think that when Ricky Gervais was young, that he knew somebody obsessed, that, that uh, just loved the army and was so <laughs> fixated on the army, who saw himself as much tougher than he was. And on the UK office, they wanted to cast like a big burly guy. But but when the guy came in, who's named Mackenzie Crook, he was so tiny and meek that for a small little guy to be boasting about his toughness was hysterical to them. But then when they cast Dwight, it was taken a very different direction. He still loved authority, but he was sort of like this fascist nerd, as they called him. Just this crazy paradox. It, it makes no sense to have somebody who's like an Amish-like beat farmer but also loves like Russell Mania and heavy metal <laughs> and stuff, right? It makes no sense that he all these things, that he's a supreme dork, but he always lands beautiful women who flock to him. 
like Pam's sister or something, yeah. you know, <laughs> that women love them, you know, and so that doesn't make any sense, you know, but somehow all of these paradoxes that, that were turned into this one character of Dwight, that's just amazing. I love that you made no sense because describe the office like, oh, bro, you got to watch a show. What's it about? Well, it's about people who work in an office selling paper. You can't you can't sell it, Andy. Am I wrong? You can't sell it. So nothing on this show really made sense, correct? No, it, it's the most boring premise. If you tried hard to think of a more boring premise, you would think, okay, the struggling <laughs> lives of a mundane office in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where they sell blank sheets of paper. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And the fact that kids like it now, it's insane. Uh, but it just shows that it's not about premise as much as character. If you have great characters, it doesn't matter if if their objective is to sell blank sheets of paper on the phone. <laughs> if it, if it's if it's written well and you care a, about the lives of the people, then it's compelling. One silly thing that kind of surprised me was there's going to be a dwarf character, uh, like it was going to work in the office. Any other like small little details that really surprised you? Like, oh wow, that could have really changed a lot because I think personally, a dwarf character would have kind of made it like. Kind of like, oh, look, let's try to make an immediate joke on this, you know, the sh- shorter person working in the office for no reason. That's like kind of like fake humor. Any others, like, think surprise you with that? Yeah. I got that out of the casting documents because Allison Jones, I mentioned, and like she was so nice that she sent me about like 12 giant boxes of all of her casting notes. And it was just this fire hose of information, and it was all fascinating. I was really surprised by all of, by how many people they thought about casting for each part. That for Michael Scott, it was a list of maybe 500 people. Oh, I mean, they, they thought about everybody from Dave Chappelle to Cedric the Entertainer uh, to to Dan Aykroyd and and Stephen Colbert and Rick Moranis. And Paul Giamatti and Philip Seymour Hoffman. I could go on for hours. It was that they thought about everybody. And that really surprised me. Uh, I think the thing that most surprised me was when Steve Carell left, they really almost hired James Gandolfini to be the, to be the new owner of the company. And I had no idea about that. Yeah, let's talk about that because when, when you wrote that, I kind of thought the same way you, you mentioned in the beginning that they named 100 different people to possibly be him. But Gandolfini was kind of – him and James Spader were kind of neck and neck at the end. Do you think yeah. Gandolfini would have been – because Spader didn't get the greatest rap, and I think he came into a difficult situation. Do you think having yeah. James Gandolfini in there would have kind of changed everything? Like what kind of – I was trying to picture it, and I couldn't do it because I just keep thinking I, – I hate to sound like a little fan, but I'd be like, oh, that's Tony Soprano in there. Was it weird for them trying right. to do that? Well, I think it was smart of James to want to do it because if you're known for one character – it's smart to do something that's the opposite to show your range. And so they thought of this boss character that they described to me that their idea was he has a ponytail, he's super mellow, he's very soft-spoken, but every once in a while he just explodes with a psychotic rage on people. I think that could have been great. Uh, But the same thing Spader faced. If you come in in season eight, and this beloved guy is gone, and you have to fill that hole. It w- it would have been really hard, and I think he was maybe smart to 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 be like, it, it's too much weight on my shoulders to to fix this show. I don't want to suffer for something that I I can't control. 
So I think he was smart to not do it. How the heck was James Spader broke? That was probably the most shocking part. Look, James Spader, how is he broke? Well, he walked me through it. I couldn't believe that because I got him on the phone, which took months because God, he's so busy. You know, he's the star of The Blacklist. And he was just so honest with me. He said that he did a big home renovation, which which he spent a bunch of his Boston legal money on. And then he was cast in a play in New York that he did for a year. And like plays don't pay a ton. And he lived in a very nice apartment. And doing the play just cost him money. That living in the city just 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 drains you. You know, if you like eat out nice and you live in a very expensive place, this city just sucks you dry. So he 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 went back to L.A. and was broke. When interviewing the writers, did they always have an idea or direction like, hey, it's going to be a paper sales story. Uh, it's going to be a love story with more of a wacky, inappropriate boss and a huge cast of weird yet familiar characters in a workplace. Was there always a plan or finish point for the show? Or was it kind of like, hey, what are we doing this week? Yeah, it was more the latter. It was they'd think about each season, what the arc was, but the seasons got so long in the middle of the run that there were 26 episodes long each, which is so much writing to do that most shows now are like 10 episodes and then they take off about a year or so. You know, so to do 26 means you have five days to do each one. Oof. And it's just uh, it's just an assembly line that they are editing one as they're filming one, as they're writing as as the writing one. It's it's all being worked on at the same time. Uh, so, you know, how uh, most stories have a beginning, middle and an end. A, a sitcom has so much middle and with each renewal, it's just more middle. So you have to really pad out your stories for a long time, and that gets tough. So they had no clue where they were going. Were you surprised to read that so many of the writers were just mentally burned out, physically burned out? That shock you? I can understand that, that the pressure of a TV show is really intense because it's this huge collaborative team you're on, and you're trying to be funnier than the guy next to you. You're trying to earn your spot for next season because it's like a baseball play where every single season – they get picked up or dropped. Mm-hmm. So you're around a table and, and you're working together on a script, but you're really working for yourself just to impress the showrunner and get your jokes on there. And week after week, month after month, and year after year of doing that, racking your brain to think of stories and think of jokes and to be the funniest one in the room. It's, I can't imagine the stress and the hours that that required. So I understand that they burned out. Office fans are passionate, they're vocal, and now they're younger. They, I told you I have a 16-year-old cousin who's calling me up. She's like, you were so right about The Office eight years ago when you told me how awesome it was. Uh, yeah. How has the response been to the book with fans? And how about any feedback from the writers or any of the cast? Uh, yeah, I, I, I sent the book out to Creed Bratton, who I'm friends with, and he loved it. Um, Andy Buckley, who plays David Wallace, he has, he has thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, to like Jen Salata was a showrunner after it uh, was after it uh, was after uh, the departure of uh, like Greg Daniels and she she really liked it. I've heard from some producers and some, and some writers. It, it's all been positive. I have not got I have gotten no negative feedback yet. Uh, as far as the young fans, I've heard from so many people as I was doing this book that. Their 14-year-old son is a super fan. I've heard that countless times. It's really insane to me, but it's very commonplace. 
even though there were like I guess uh, there was a handful of good episodes after Michael left. Uh, you described mm-hmm. like the cast that it was like a funeral. It was like one. You know that's one of the only scenes in TV or the movies that I teared up on. And it was the truth when he says, uh, "Pam, let me know if this ever uh, airs." Like, like it, it makes my I'm like, oh my god, that's right. It's nine, eight years. No one ever knew if it it, it added uh, because he's such a special character. I've never heard of an actor or anyone so loved that no one had a bad thing to say about him did that like surprise you with steve carell that how loved he is it would yes it surprised me because they did all love each other but sometimes i'd be talking to uh, to a editor or producer and they go off the record to me and they would complain about somebody but it was never steve carell it was even off the record i did almost 90 interviews everybody reveres him they love him they view him as this guru you know and this father figure on the set he's uh, by all accounts a fantastic guy if you had to give one episode to someone who's never watched the office now the dinner party is my mom was here on easter and then we actually mm-hmm. just threw it on in the background because it's one of the classics if but no one would really get the show unless they knew the characters if you want to say hey listen i got this show for you you're going on a long flight binge this season and you want to give him one show one episode to watch which one is it I think it's business school. I think it shows all the ranges. It, it shows the entire range of the office. It, you see Michael and Ryan in his business school, and you get a real sense of their of their dynamic and of Michael's stupidity. It, you see Pam at her art show, and when no one comes besides Oscar and Michael, and you see you see her sadness and how poignant it is. And you see the office in which there's a bat loose, and Jim pretends to be to be bitten <laughs> by the bat, and he goes his toy. He, he's he is becoming a, a vampire. Like that, that's three great plots in 22 minutes that range that goes from so surreal and silly to so just gut wrenchingly like poignant. Um, it's brilliant, and it's a good showcase of all the characters. I think. Michael Scott's gone. Uh, the biggest mistake as a fan for me, I'm like, ah, oh. like obviously it's easy for me to Monday morning quarterback. They, and you kind of agree to it in the book that they never made Dwight the manager. I thought there was endless storylines of Dwight being the manager of there would have been different days of I know there was Shroot Bucks and this. Yeah. Why didn't that happen? Uh, the short version is that the hangover happened. The Hangover is one of the most successful like comedies the past few decades. I mean, that was a blockbuster. And that made Ed Helms a big star. So if you're NBC and you lose Steve Carell, it's okay. Well, let's promote the most famous guy left, which was, Ed, which, which was, which was the Andy character. And, and it was, by all accounts, a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. That Andy as the boss was not funny. And Dwight, as the boss, he had a much stronger chance of working, I think. You mentioned the spinoff, The Farm, which would have been a show about Dwight Schrute and his thing. Yeah. I love Dwight. I love the scenes with him and Moe's and stuff. Yeah. Do you think that would have been a stretch how to be successful after even a season of that? No, because if you see the scenes in The Farm pilot, they, they aired in the ninth season, it's not funny at all. Mm-hmm. That, that a character is often funny in a certain context. It's funny to see Dwight, a weird beat farmer, like metal dude at, uh, at an office. If you see him at his beat farm all day with his equally strange relatives, it's not compelling. It's not going to work. And the pilot was, by all accounts, horrible. Uh, so I think if you take Dwight out of the office, it just doesn't work. You mentioned Netflix, and I'm glad you did because 
why is it so popular? And it's definitely more popular now than it was back in the day. You mentioned how it's one of the most constantly downloaded shows on Netflix. Why? Yeah. Well, I think the peak TV era has produced so many great shows. It's been an incredible like, decade of TV, of docuseries and dramas and thrillers and so many things. But there's not many great sitcoms. That, that, that there's not much of the peak TV era that makes you laugh, really. So for this show, where there's nine seasons and like six good ones or so. You know, it's a lot of TV to just sort of wade into. You can just turn your brain off, laugh, and stay in the world of Thunder Mifflin for hours and hours and hours. And it's a great escape from everything. I'm not sure if you know the answer to this. You probably do, though. I know it's off Netflix next year, and I think it was yeah. bought for like a half a billion dollars. Yep. That's like Seinfeld money. Now, does the cast reap the benefits of that? Like, I know Elaine, Jerry, George, and Kramer crushed it. Do, does the cast, like, will, will they uh, benefit from all that money, or they don't really own any of that stuff? In small ways. I think they get – in syndication, they get points for their appearances. If you're if – you're, if you have a speaking role on a show – that airs again, you get paid for it. But the big paydays for a thing like that are for the producers. It's for Stephen Merchant and for for Greg Daniels, for like for Ricky Gervais, uh, and Steve Carell are the people that really land a windfall of profit for a sale like that. As a fan, and I love talking to you because you're a real fan of it. You're a real fan of Howard Stern, so it's coming from the heart. Yeah. Are there any storylines? I know there's a few all fans have that you really didn't like being big. Like, oh, that was okay. That wasn't a good, a good segue. I didn't like that segment. Anything like that for you? I think the entire last two seasons <laughs> didn't really work. Uh, I think Jim and Pam as a married couple with two kids were not funny. Um. I think at the end that the whole thing with Angela and the senator and Oscar, it wasn't funny. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I could go on forever, but I, you know, I spoke to one writer who said that after season seven, he sat down and spoke to uh, Greg Daniels and was like, "Look, I think we, I, I think we need to to make really hard choices now, and we should fire half the cast." Mm -hmm. It's too many characters that we can't service 19 characters. That's insane. Like Seinfeld is four. Friends is six. We, we can't do 19 characters. It's too many people. And they didn't do it. But I think his instincts were brutal but correct that it was too many people. It's too much happening. And they got too broad that if you look at Kevin in the early seasons – he has a fiance. He's a poker champion. He 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 seems reasonably like qualified for his job. Mm -hmm. And by the midpoint in the end, he's a complete raging idiot, yeah. like, too dumb to breathe. Even that the characters got too broad, and when they aren't, and when they're not grounded in reality, they're less compelling. I think. Before we finish up with a few quick hit questions, give the plug because I, I want to say this again. I try to read a book a week. That's always my New Year's resolution. And mm -hmm. I, I saw this book on Goodreads. They were like, uh, it was like one of my suggested books. And uh, someone on someone tweeted it. I really mean this. It's one of the best books I've ever read. It was uh, wow. I, I mean like just because it got you as a fan of the show. It's like I'm a big Yankees fan. So any oh let me read a Yankees book. This is the definitive book of the Office. It told you. Thank you. And I don't want to because I hate having authors on sometimes because I hate like hey tell the story about. But you gave mm -hmm. insight on. When Pam and Jim got engaged, which is one of the most iconic moments of the show, you gave how it happened, the 
how much money it costs, the headaches. You gave such insight about what they had for breakfast that real fans would just <laughs> like, I'm telling you, real fans are craving it. So just give the plug where everyone can buy it and where they can follow you and stuff and see all your work. Sure. Why? Well, thanks so much. That's deeply flattering. That's the highest praise I can ever hear. So thank you. It's a it's available everywhere. You can buy books. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. You can. It's on Audible as an audio download. It's everywhere that that you can buy a book. It's for sale. Author Eric Lawson is a very close friend of mine, and he had a book come out recently. Huh? And uh, I, I spoke to him. I'm like, dude, are you worried because everyone's inside? It's going to hurt the marketing. You're not going out and doing promotion. Yeah. He's like. I love it. I'm not going out there doing a million interviews, million of these, and people are just downloading books. How has this affected your book, good or bad, that you can't do any appearances and stuff? Well, at first, I was kind of horrified and really upset because we had a whole plan that we planned out for a long time. I was going to have a – I was going to Scranton for a, a, a book party in Scranton. There was going to be a big Strand event. I was going to like Toronto for this thing. I was going all, went all over. There's a whole plan. And when they canceled everything and bookstores all closed, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm selling a book when you can't buy a book. <laughs> you know, um, I was like having a cold sweat. I, I felt so bad to be focused on my, on my bullshit book when the world was ending. But I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going the worst possible time ever. There's no bookstores. Um so I was, you know, pacing around and like hitting walls almost. But what I realized was you can't go to a, a, a movie theater or a baseball game or concert, but you can read a book. Uh, and so they switched all interviews to the phone. I did like 40 radio shows. I did a ton of Zoom interviews and Skype and all kinds of stuff. Uh, and it's sold a ton. I think people buy it through Amazon. They buy it, they download it, they get the Audible version. Some, you know, you can see you can go, you can go you can, they can, they can buy it. It was for sale at Target and Walmart. I think people are home now. They're bored. Mm -hmm. They're watching The Office and they want to read about it. I'm not sure it helped. I think we would have done better if like Barnes Noble was still open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like that didn't help, but. Um, it did pretty well. It was number five, you know. I wasn't even thinking about being on that list at all. So maybe it was for my benefit. I I hate to think about benefiting from this hell we're all living in and all the tragedies, but maybe it helped. You and I are at a bar. No mm -hmm. one, no one cares about the office. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? Uh, Creed. <laughs> if so, if you texted Creed, he texts you back. We were texting last week, yeah. Great answer. You're a big music guy. How about yeah. one either dream interview with uh, you know, an artist, a band, or whatever, or one concert you wish you could have attended throughout your history? That's throughout my entire life. In uh, history, if you can be like, I wish I could have saw blank at blank, who would it be? Okay. Well, in my time at Rolling Stone, I would say Led Zeppelin. They did one concert in 07. It was it was a one reunion show, and I, and I didn't go, and I really regret it. Oh. If I could go through a history, oh, my God. I mean, I could name a hundred, but you know what? I'd like to see the Beatles at the, in like Hamburg, Germany in 1962 when they'd play like six-hour sets to these to these bar crowds of just covers and, and they're having fun. I think if I could see anything, I'd see that. Good answer. How about coolest piece of memorabilia you own? Maybe from The Office, from meeting Howard Stern, Rolling Stone, meeting all these uh, 
all these artists and bands. Coolest piece of memorabilia you own? Jeez, I'm not a collector really, but uh, there's an Office episode where Dwight wears a pig nose around his face. I forget which one it <laughs> okay. is, but I have that nose. <laughs> We're all holed up now. One show you've been binge watching right now that like you're like, hey, you got to watch this show. Uh. I've been binge, I've been binge watching a single show and it's really dorky but Star Trek the Next Generation my girlfriend's never seen it and I've gotten her into it shockingly so I've been watching a ton of Star Trek TNG just hours of it super dorky but you win because my wife is like listen you got to watch this show before the 90 days I'm like oh okay well, what's it about can I listen to there's no sports on Andy so I'm like whatever you want to watch babe it's all you before the 90 days 90 day fiance we are watching that every night have you ever watched it oh wow no, I've never seen that. No, please don't. You're going to get addicted to it. Okay. What's next for you? Either for Rolling Stone, another book, anything on the horizon? I mean, I'm I'm always I'm always writing, you know, for Rolling Stone. That's my full-time job. I have tons of articles there I'm working on. I'm working on one now about the anniversary of the Kent State Massacre, which is next week. Ooh, wow. Um, it's been 50 years. Uh, but books, I've been thinking about it. But this was – it was such a difficult year of so much stress and so much work that I can't even think about book two now yet. It's just the thought of it. I wanted to just, to just, to, to just shrivel up and die to think about it, another book. Are you a sports guy or no? I'm from Cleveland. I love Cleveland sports. I love the Cavs and the Indians and the Browns, but it's not my life's passion really. Most love athlete from the land. Is it LeBron, Jim Brown, Joe Thomas, Grady Sizemore, Manny Ramirez? Who, who's the most beloved beloved athlete out there? In Cleveland, I love LeBron James. You know, I've been hurt by some of his actions. Mm-hmm. But but he I won a title. He brought a title, yeah. He won a title, yeah. And I'm roughly his same age. So okay. I remember being in high school and hearing about, about this kid in Akron who was making <laughs> all these waves. <laughs> Um, and what's so funny is my friend's younger brother is his exact same year. So they played against each other. And and my friend's brother, he's a great guy. He must be five foot six. Okay. <laughs> and so he's like guarding LeBron. Okay. And then a few months later, Shaq is guarding LeBron. You know, he went from playing like little people my age <laughs> to the NBA. And so the thought of that just cracks me up just every time thinking about how about how things changed yeah so i love lebron you know i was really a big fan of the indians back in the 90s so that whole squad of carlos Baerga and albert bell and paul sorrento and jim tomey and all of guys i'm very fond of that team listen to me one of the best books i've read in a while like i said i'm echoing it again it brought back memories it explained a ton opened up my eyes it changed the way i watch a show now because now i'm watching it looking in the background like oh is pam on my space and me so yeah. the, the plug <laughs> is the office the untold story of the greatest sitcom of the 2000s i wish we could have done this in person but listen good yeah. luck my friend congrats with the book and i'll uh, stay safe and i'll talk to you soon oh okay great why well, thanks so much i had so much fun on your show so i deeply appreciate it thanks brother talk soon man okay bye bye andy with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time (gasps) no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.